the movie actually, I think, forced the U.S. government to be like, yo, we should make sure this doesn't happen. <laughs> Welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And we are currently in part two of our director series on the legendary Stanley Kubrick. So Thomas, can you talk a little bit about what we discussed last week in the part one section of Kubrick's career? Yeah, so we discussed his first three films, which you know, started kind of with smaller indies and, and what we talked, what we, what we really touched on is this idea that no matter what kind of story Kubrick was telling, even from the beginning, which to be honest, was not the strongest of stories at the Mm -hmm. start. Yeah. Uh, We talked about killer's kiss being kind of just basic, uh, noir storyline. Yeah. Um, but no matter what he was making, he, he was someone who felt like he wanted to push, camera work visuals as far mm-hmm. as he could outside of the norm as he could go the way mm-hmm. those movies were lit the way he was doing handheld the way he was doing these insanely long dollies with intricate sets it's just kind of like every shot from those first uh three films really is just kind of breathtaking and and this is coming in a period when when people because he was kind of starting to come up within the studio system even mm-hmm. though he started as a independent filmmaker he was not working in a way this was this was a time period when you kind of, if you were in the studio system you shot things the way studio yeah. movies are meant to be shot so a lot of what we talked about last week was just kind of how he kind of heralded he was he was the one to usher in this kind of crazy change in in the way films were shot in the 60s because he he came ahead of it yeah and, and it's funny bringing that up because i feel like this week is very much his like early I, I, traditional studio era of filmmaking yes. it feels like yes and then um, he goes back and makes and makes spartacus and shoots it exactly like every studio movie show exactly <laughs> so it's like um you have um he does pads of glory which is like kind of his he, the killing was through united artist and then pads of glory is kind of the one that's through also through united artists i believe um and, and that's bordering on studio in a way but the mm-hmm. content really isn't is the thing. Yeah, the no. content's not with this anti-war kind of uh, 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 themes to it. Um, but yeah, it's like you're saying it's very much like he's he's reinventing the way films are told. But I, I think too, and that shows in the killing where again he has these kind of um, debates or conflicts with Lucian Ballard, who is the director of photography. Trust me, that will not be the first time he has conflicts with a director of photography <laughs> on one of his films. We'll talk about that today. Um, so, yeah, it's like he was kind of finding himself in his 20s. And then weirdly, at the beginning of his 30s, he kind of um, went, it went to what the Hollywood expected of him. And even on mm-hmm. Pads of Glory, we'll talk about that briefly, too, a little bit more today, is that he almost went very more Hollywood on that one, too, but was kind of pulled back a different way. Um, but then t- today you'll kind of get that Hollywood, I- the Hollywood system idea. But then by the end of it, you'll kind of probably see Kubrick kind of coming into his own. Uh, but but that part, but those first few films, you see a few things, not just visually, but also thematically what he was dealing with. So the anti-war themes that were happening that mm-hmm. were popping up throughout kind of his career. 
um, and a little bit also of that kind of dark humor and cynical perspective, I think, pops up, specifically in the Pads of Glory, um, mm-hmm. that would come up more in his later films. So, yeah, so let's dive into kind of part two today about where he was at coming into this era. So after the financial critical, critical success of Pads of Glory, Stanley was a rising name in Hollywood. Kirk Douglas, the star of Pads of Glory, would quickly snatch Kubrick up with a two-picture deal through his production company, and Kubrick and his producing partner, James B. Harris, would spend several years trying to develop projects for both television and film, but nothing seemed to gain traction. Many of the projects Kubrick and Harris tried to tackle dealt with war. That was kind of a big theme. Again, got to go to this Pads of Glory theme. Uh, mm. One of them was a television adaptation of the movie Operation Madball, which was a military comedy starring Jack Lemmon and Ernie Kovacs, where they tried to... Can't say I've seen that one. Yeah, where they tried to pick up nurses on on their military base. It's a military comedy, and like that premise sounds almost like MASH in a weird way. Yeah, Um, (laughs) that's what I was going to say. Yeah, but I think it was Lemmon's first starring role, and Ernie Kovacs, like like first top build, and then Ernie Kovacs, who was kind of a big comedian at the time, his first act or his acting debut basically um and they tried they actually met with Kovacs to kind of discuss a tv adaptation but it just didn't move forward um Kubrick and Harris also developed an American Civil War movie that was going to be this massive film starring Gregory Peck but that did not move forward um but also during this time Kubrick and Harris would strike up conversations with famed actor Marlon Brando uh, the duo came to Brando initially with the idea of working on a boxing movie together. I don't know if it was trying to be like on the waterfront or whatever, um, mm-hmm. but that project would soon evolve into something else that Brando was wanting to produce. Uh, Thomas, you briefly mentioned this uh, last month. We're talking about Wild Bunch, but Kubrick worked with Brando to develop Sam Peckinpah's script for One Eye Jacks. Okay. Um, yeah. Some would say his pro- process lasted six months while in 1999, Kubrick said this lasted for two years trying to get this project made. Um, there would be conflicts between Brando and Kubrick with it coming to a head when Brando called an all hands on deck production meeting, allowing everyone to state their problems to him, but they only had three minutes to do so uh, a piece. Uh, according to Kubrick, according to Kubrick in the book, eyes wide open, he stated that Brando had a buzzer and would ding people when they hit three minutes and would move on to the next person. <laughs> Finally, okay, got, that's enough complaining. You're allowed yeah, to complain. Yeah, for but, three minutes. No, you got to stop. No more complaining. <laughs> so, so finally, it got to Kubrick, and he told Brando this was incredibly stupid. To which Brando responded, "You now have two minutes and fifty seconds." <laughs> so then, Stanley Stanley started on page one of the script and began going through it. He got to page five when Brando's buzzer went off. And he told Stanley he couldn't say any more of his problems, to which Stanley responded, Marlon, why don't you go fuck yourself? Mm-hmm. Brando would then leave the room, never coming back, uh, and Stanley would step down, believing Brando wanted to force him off the project so he could direct the film himself, which that's what he did. Um, but even with all that, Brando and Kubrick still respected one another, it seems like. Brando would say that Stanley is, u- is unusually perceptive and delicately attuned to people. He digests what he learns and brings to a new project an original point of view and reserved passion while Kubrick would say Brando was one of the world's foremost artists also during this gap as I said Kubrick and Harris were working for Kirk Douglas because their two picture deal 
Harris Harris Kubrick Pictures would work on a total of or would work on several scripts, including one based on a book with the title "I Stole Sixteen Million Dollars," which was a true story about a Canadian priest who became one of North America's greatest bank robbers and safe crackers of the early 20th century. I would watch uh, that. Yeah, I think they're still trying to make it today, actually. like someone, They're trying nope. to do a miniseries of it. Once the script was finished, Douglas would pass in the project, thinking the script was poorly written. Uh, they would then eye Cary Grant for the lead role before giving up on the project entirely. Um, Stanley would later say that he did not like most of the scripts he and Harris worked on while working for Douglas. So it seemed that Hollywood's young hotshot director had no viable projects in the works. Um, that was until Kirk Douglas called him up in February of 1959 in need of help. Douglas was in the middle of producing and starring in his passion project, Spartacus. I call this Kirk Douglas's mm-hmm. petty project because he decided to make it after he got passed over for Ben-Hur for Charlton Heston. So he was so like, I want to make a sword and sandal movie, damn it. And I would have been, I could have been been her. I could have been her. And so he optioned the rights to this book based on the story of Spartacus. Now there was actually a competing project about Spartacus starring Gil Brenner. Um, Hmm. uh, Once Universal backed Douglas's version, that version would disappear. Uh, Douglas would ask, first ask legendary British director David Lane to direct but he turned the project down. He would then ask his co-star of the film, Lawrence Olivier, to direct, but he thought directing and acting was too much at one time for this type of film. That's when Douglas would go to Anthony Mann, who directed several Western classics starring Jimmy Stewart. Um, Mann mm-hmm. would work on the project, even shooting a week of the film, which was the actually the opening of the film, uh, before Douglas actually fired him, thinking he had not known how to handle a large, short and sandal epic. That's, that's you know, probably valid. Yeah, and say he was like, let me go to the young guy I just worked with a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I have him under a deal. I might as well go talk to him. Uh, so he calls up Kubrick and asks him to quickly step in and direct the project with pretty much very little prep. Uh, at the age of 31, Kubrick would begin directing the most expensive film in Hollywood history up to that point. Wow. So, Thomas, what is Spartacus about? Uh, Spartacus is a story of a Roman slave who is kind of shipped off to a gladiator school and while at the gladiator school kind of leads his fellow gladiators in a, in a rebellion, which grows and grows and grows into this slave revolution throughout uh, Rome. Mm-hmm. And they are, you know, they're fighting for their freedom. And, and while we're seeing the the rebellion happen, the revolution happen, we're also kind of seeing the machinations of the Roman Senate and the power grabs uh, that are going on there, the, the the politics that are happening there and kind of how the fate of Spartacus and his band of rebelling slaves is all kind of held in the hands of these couple of senators who are kind of using what's happening as an excuse to gain more power. Yeah. It's, it's a big story. It's a lot. It's a big story. Uh, yeah. I when I was when I was watching it this 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 time, which it, it had been a long time since I'd seen it. Yeah, I was just like, you know, I was like, you know, it was one of those things for better or for worse. Like the thought just came to my head, like, wow, they they don't make them like this anymore. I don't I don't yeah. know if they should, but they don't. And then I was just like, well, yeah, because it's TV. I mean, they literally made a Spartacus television show. Like, they did. Yeah. There's there's so much here, and there's so many like relation interpersonal relationships and like you know you could they'd have some meeting between two characters and i was like this would be like an entire episode of your show 
yeah and now it's like 20 minutes but it still turns into a three and a half hour long movie yeah it's it's always it's like i mean you could uh, kind of another thing it's like when um when olivia's character and tony curtis like they had their whole like thing where they're off together you know that was we'll talk about that later but they were, that was part of that was cut from the uh the original film mm. But Crassus with uh, with uh, Antoninus, like that whole bit would be like could be a whole episode of like yeah. Antoninus like being put into slavery for Olivier working at the place and then like running away, and like mm-hmm. you would have a, like because it just kind of cuts to him being with Spartacus all of a sudden. Yeah, like yeah. you have a whole thing of him escaping, escaping from Olivier is the thing. But yeah, so I had never seen this before. Well, I take that back. I had seen like two hours of this movie before, which in most cases would be I'd seen the full movie. But I had walked in, my, my former roommate Mark, uh, he was watching this for, I think, for a class at UCLA. And I came in and watched the last two hours of it. And I was like, mm. but yeah, so I agree with you. Because I, I mentioned this to my now roommate. He was like, oh, you mean you're watching the TV show? I was like, no, no, no I'm watching the, the 1960 film. He was like, oh, I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this film, when watching it, um, I was like, wow, he has some shots in here that feel so like not of the era, like really like striking. And then for a lot of it's like, wow, this feels like every other sword and sandal movie yep. of this yep, period. Exactly. But he's st- like, the scope is still somewhat like insane. Like there's some certain shots at the, at the big battle. He has this big, huge wide shot of all yeah. of like the Romans coming in. And again, kind of, bring it back later like it feels like barry linden later on he's very mm-hmm. much dealing with these like big this big landscape in certain moments right. but then he has like the ones where you can tell they're on a soundstage shooting a scene um even though he tries to do some stuff different with it like there's the one particular scene i think about where it's with douglas and gene simmons not that gene simmons um <laughs> from kiss but uh it's when him and her they're doing their like walk through when they're like kind of at the campgrounds together and they're mm-hmm. walking uh uh kind of talking about like uh well again their first time together again finally when they're in the group when t- after tony curtis quote unquote sings um mm-hmm. uh they, singer of songs singer of songs when he just he, he talks um <laughs> but like he he um he shoots like this kind of dolly sh- this dolly shot and you're having like the leaves in front and he's adding a lot of depth to the scene that like other directors would not add any of that to. It would just be a straight mm-hmm. dolly shot. Um, and then he even has kind of a, some unique cutting when Tony Curtis is singing where he's cutting to like families and people at the camp uh, together, like as they're like all together as like family basically. And so it's, mm-hmm. there's some, some sequences that are, they're, they're interesting but a lot of it feels like just big, huge Hollywood epic. Um, yeah, exactly. But what are some of your favorite scenes or moments in this movie? Um, I mean, I think the that first gladiator fight, I, I, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of kind of iconic moments from this. And I think of people, people do try and think of like the last, um, you know, the last hour and a half. But um, I think one of the most iconic shots from this movie is the the guy he's fighting turning and and chucking his his trident into the stands and like running after them that's such a that's such a great sequence yeah he has an interesting like a kind of camera perspective in that sequence where like i read up on this time them talking about how like if you notice in the kind of that battle that little that that gladiator fight 
he puts the camera at a, like almost like a, a aerial shot from the perspective like Olivier and them and they're just mm-hmm. like talking about random stuff and mm-hmm. it's not like two people are literally battling to the death in front of them but to these roman kind of uh uh senators or royal not royalty but these uh, kind of elites elites thank you um they like it's mundane to them to watch yeah. two people kill themselves basically after and after you know they've insisted upon it being to the death because yeah. uh peter ustinov's character is like we don't you know as don't as, do that here. as yeah as as you know repulsive of a character as he is he's like it's not smart to have them fight to the death inside the gladiator school like that's yeah. that's not good <laughs> well and he's also together that with ustinov is that like he's 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 a he's a slaver he basically sells these people to be gladiators for elites he doesn't want them to die because he'll miss a profit on selling them later is kind of the thing so he doesn't Mm -hmm. want his main people to die because of it um speaking of Yusinov, he's really fantastic in this movie (laughs) what is he when i know it's like because so i I, because i haven't watched many peter Yusinov movies um i've seen this i've seen blackbeard's ghost was the first one um <laughs> i've seen topkapi which was uh another movie he won an oscar for but like he, he, there's i always think it's fun when like you're you're watching a bunch of films or you, when you look back at older films or even modern films where you start to see like actors or actresses you love but like why haven't i ever seen anything with them and then you realize mm-hmm. they still have this very historic career you just for some reason have never picked out one of those movies with them in it and Yusinov right. is one of those guys where, like, I think he's fantastic in everything I've seen him in. But I think why he's so good in this movie is I think he's the only character that really has a character arc in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like he, he kind of says it like he goes from being this dude who's like, let me see your teeth. Like the ones who have the better teeth are, are like are ones that will live longer and more healthier. And I can kind of put into fights and sell better. And then by the end of it, he's kind of developed a conscience of like, oh, I feel terrible for like some of the stuff. But he still is also like he takes money to go save uh, Spartacus's wife and kid. But he's still like right. he still is like trying to save them and get them out. Mm-hmm. And he feels guilty for stuff he's done in the past. Um, yeah. And I think I think again, and Yusinov does it, handles it so well, specifically, I think, with his scenes any of the scenes with like with olivier and charles lawton yeah. are are fantastic he, he, just them he two and charles lawton yeah and charles lawton especially are, are, are great together because you know they're both kind of guys that they're both they're you know obviously both fantastic dramatic actors but both guys who have a good grasp on comedy and yeah. and and some of that you know the wit the wit definitely plays itself into their scenes yeah we'll talk a little bit about the screenwriting screenwriting stuff later with this movie but Yusinov did write all the scenes with Lawton apparently because Yusinov oh, wow. said Yusinov said that he understood Lawton's strengths more and so he wrote a lot of the dialogue in those scenes for them is what he later That's stated awesome. in an interview um but no they're yeah they're fantastic and and yet speaking of of them two and then olivia it's like it really is like to go with this era of hollywood a very star-studded cast maybe yeah. kubrick's most star-studded cast like in one thing because like usually mm-hmm. it's like he has like made one like if it's jack nicholson and and the shining he has like one big star but like you're looking at 
these titans of acting with Olivier and Lawton. And then you have this massive star and Kirk Douglas. And then you have Tony Curtis, who's like a young, a young star at this point. And then you have Pierre Ustinov, who's one of the most modern or one of the, one of the more applauded character actors at this point. You got, let's talk about Tony, Tony Curtis. Go ahead and talk whether about Tony or not Curtis. Tony Curtis should be in this movie. I, I, I'm, a, not say, yeah, I'm not saying he's, he's great. He, he, the thing about Tony <laughs> Curtis in this movie is that he just feels way too modern is the thing. Yeah. For her, he, for, he can't, he can't get rid of that accent. No. <laughs> it's just like, it's such a like rat pack, you know, yeah. modern Italian American accent. And then he's just like, Hey, I'm Antonitis. Yeah. It's, it's a, hey, the cats in the back and the bags in the river. Like you just want him to spout sweet smell <laughs> success like, uh, lines in the movie. But yeah, it's, yeah, it, he, he does. It, it just felt kind of odd them together, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's still, it's an interesting movie in spots. Um, but you definitely have those sense that sense of like melodrama uh, in this movie with this mm-hmm. episode. And I'm not saying that like, that's always a bad thing because I know you and I always talk about how melodrama is like people say it as like a dirty word in a way when filmmaking. Yeah. Um, it but here it does feel kind of it can feel over the top in moments. Um, yeah, especially the the love story is yeah. I can, it, you know the, the the like long like you were saying kind of shot shot really well but the like long walks and, and yes. declarations of love i'm just kind of like okay we got we got a lot of stuff yeah, going there, on in this movie we got to keep it moving there's that scene when they meet back up after he believes that she's been sold like sold to 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 rome or somewhere in rome mm-hmm. i think to olivier's character uh when she gets away and it has the like they're having that that those like laughing fits together and i was just like mm-hmm. this just feels very odd like yeah. it just it just this is one i think of all the movies i feel like if this is the one you show someone and be like hey who do you think directed this people probably would not say stanley kubrick is yeah, the thing no no one would say stanley kubrick yeah absolutely not because there's really not that many trademarks of kubrick and we'll talk more about that but it's it's more of a kirk Douglas movie is kind of the thing it feels like it's more of a Kirk Douglas movie, and it's and it's a and it's a studio movie. This exactly. is this is exactly you know the the golden age of of studios. Even though this is on the kind of downward slope of the golden age of studios, like that's what the studios were there for were these giant movies like this, yeah. like Cleopatra, that like you know could absolutely hammer them money wise. But that that's yeah. why they existed. Yeah, was exactly. to be able to afford this kind of project. Yeah, I mean, this really what these movies at this time were very much the the Marvel films of the day in a way. Maybe mm-hmm. not as as consistently successful, but were easy ways to get people into the theaters. Because you also got to think too, you're in the the rise of the television era at this point at the mm-hmm. in the fifties and the tail in the or being the sixties. So people were trying to make big massive films to get people into the theaters. That's right. that's why, guys. It's 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 cyclical. It's like everything happens. Everything's happening now, guys. Has happened before. That was the big. It's like why? How can we get people off your couch from streaming to go to the theaters? Let's do IMAX. Let's do this. And I feel like at this point, it's the same exact thing. Let's make big, huge films again. This is also the first film that Kubrick shot that was anamorphic, that was really big and widescreen. Um, he ever also his first uh, uh, Technicolor film or color film. Yeah, mm-hmm. as well. And yeah, and so like I said, some stuff he handles very well with the big kind of the big anytime he has a big canvas to paint is when he's at mm-hmm. his strongest in this movie, which is somewhat surprising being as he's never painted with or never shot with such a big uh 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 screen before or such a big canvas yeah. before. 
Yeah, uh, and he's uh, definitely never told a story this big before. No. Um, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I feel like too, like in terms of like a life story, it's like it it is very. I think the biggest comparison you can make is May Barry Lyndon with, with kind mm. of the connections of a big story over time about a character and how big he paints it. Barry Lyndon is, I think is a better film. Um, and it's more, it's more in the Kubrick vein than Spartacus is. Um, but a few things I do like, I do kind of like, it might be melodramatic, but I do kind of like the film's finale at the very end when, when, uh, Yusinov is getting Simmons out of out of the city they're in, and mm-hmm. they see Kirk. They see Spartacus uh, crucified at the very end of the film. This and is your son. This is your son. I mean, it's again, it's, it's very of the era, but I think actually that's a more emotional uh, moment mm-hmm. than the "I am Spartacus" moment. No, oh, yeah, I think I am Spartacus. I, I think. Go ahead. I think there's a lot of potential. I like, like we said, I don't know if Tony Curtis is the one to is pull this off, but the, <laughs> the, the, their, their final scene from a storytelling point of view is it's such great. an interesting. Like, it is. Like, yeah. The, the Romans think this is like, oh, this is your punishment and you have to fight to the death. But they're both, they both know that being crucified on the cross is, is so brutal that they're both trying extra hard to kill the other. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and, and, you know, Spartacus is like, you know, he's like, Antonius is like I'm not gonna let you die on that cross like you're our leader yeah I'm loyal to you and Spartacus is like I'm a better fighter than you like this is <laughs> you're, you're a singer of songs it's not you're not gonna kill me in the in the arena yeah and he's so much like I see you as a son in a way like that's the whole kind of ending is that like you're the you're 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 the father to me with Tony Curtis kind of says to Spartacus and I said to Spartacus and then Spartacus like you're you remind me of the son that I'll never get to see or whatever um mm-hmm. it's very much this father-son relationship which you don't honestly you don't really feel in the movie that's the, they don't really feel like father and son to me mm-hmm. um if that's what they're trying to go for um but yeah you had that moment and like yeah kurt or douglas doesn't want him to die on the cross because he, he he loves him too much and he's like i can i can withstand it i can deal with it i don't want you to be punished for for my for me being the leader basically um and it is it is a good moment and that and that kind of ending going to that and then going them leaving i think those are some some interesting moments they're trying to and also like olivier being just an asshole like (laughs) let's just let's just crucify them all since they won't tell me who spartacus is um and that's when again going the yusinov so that's when yusinov kind of develops a, a character arc where he's like or conscience where he's like oh man why are we doing this? Like, why are they treating me? Like, and he's like, and great. He was like, I want to say, he wants to sell them to make money off them. But now obviously he's like, Oh, I have a conscience. Like, I feel guilty that this is what's happening to these people. Any other things you want to say? I mean, the, just the, the, you, you, you said, you know, the scale of the battle scenes is yeah. insane, but it, it's, I, I don't know from a production point of view, I don't know how you safely shoot those, the flaming logs. That is. Insane. Oh yeah. It's insane. Yeah, they're running these flaming logs down this hill after all these real soldiers at the bottom of the hill. And you're seeing people get like run over with it. Yeah, you're seeing it like crash into this huge group of soldiers and keep burning. Just like how many people got burned on that day? And um, yeah, I, I I think that set was was uh, I think some of that was actually on the studio lot, which was which was mm-hmm. allowing them to control it more. That, 
but that yeah. scene well and and uh, i might be stepping on some of your information here but when when this was re-released in the 90s for home video it was it was given a kind of retroactive pg-13 yes rating and and there are, are that battle scene there's like you know it's it's not your normal like oh i hit you with a sword and you fall over like you see people stabbed no and, at, like you see one, a limb get cut yeah, off yeah there's one part when curtis strip cuts a guy's arm off and i was like yeah. oh <laughs> It's 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 very that is that is one of the parts you know yeah like you were saying this is ba- shot like your basic sword and sandal movie and and through a lot of it you're just like this could have been made ten years ago in the studio system and I wouldn't have known the difference yeah, but like yeah. there, that is one of those times where you're just like oh this is we're getting into the sixties here <laughs> yeah you're you're pushing it um and then I guess one moment I'll bring up well I'll 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 talk about it later actually there's one moment as that was in that's in this cut that we watched because that because we're watching the kind of 1991 restoration or mm-hmm. we're watching the 2015 restoration cut and that because they added stuff back in but there's a particular scene they added back in I'll talk about a little bit later um between Olivier and uh uh Curtis so really the biggest thing about this film has nothing to do with Stanley Kubrick is the thing <laughs> so the film was written by Dalton Trumbo uh, and for those that that know about the Red Scare in the 1950s, specifically when it came to Hollywood, Dalton Trumbo was one of the more famous names that were that was blacklisted during the the period when they're doing the House on American Committee, uh, and they found that Trumbo was a former member of the Communist Party for four years like in the 1940s, and he refused to name other people that had communist ties. So. He was blacklisted. He was one of the kind of the Hollywood 10 that were blacklisted or one of the people that were blacklisted from uh, working. But he would spend several years writing under a pseudonym uh, during those times, including winning an Oscar for uh, the Audrey Hepburn, Gary Peck romantic comedy, Roman Holiday, which I think he would Mm -hmm. receive much later. I think mean after he died or something, he finally got his Oscar. Um, I think when he initially wrote the script for Spartacus, his pen name was Sam Jackson. (laughs) um so there you go um but kubrick however was not a fan of trumbo's script while the film was in production there became two warring factions kubrick against trumbo and douglas when it came to the stories or when it came to the film script since trumbo was blacklisted he could not be on set so kubrick was rewriting the script when he had the chance kubrick felt that spartacus was a boring character because he was flawless while trumbo and douglas wanted him to be that way to make him heroic uh, Douglas and Stanley had tensions on the set of Pads of Glory, specifically regarding the ending where the three soldiers were executed. And Douglas wanted the film to have an unhappy ending, while Kubrick wanted to give the film a happy ending because it was his first real, real Hollywood picture. Douglas, being the film's producer and star, would win out in that argument. I actually think he was right in that regard. Um, but tensions would reach the same heights here, if not more so, when it came to Spartacus. The biggest debate between the two was over the famous I am Spartacus scene. Uh, on the day of shooting it, while in, while in front of the crew, Kirk Douglas asked Stanley what he thought of the scene, and he said he thought it was stupid and melodramatic, wanting to cut it out of the film. <laughs> Douglas would then yell at him in front of everyone, uh, and but Douglas was not the only, or, and Douglas was also not happy with Kubrick because Kubrick wanted to get sole writing credit for the film going against Douglas's plan to help Dalton Trumbo get back into Hollywood by giving him credit for the first time in over in almost a decade. Um, it was reported that, uh, that 
I think Douglas's wife or Kubrick's wife, one of them suggested Douglas and Kubrick go, both go to therapy together, like couples therapy to work, <laughs> to work out their stuff. Um, this might be, be part of the legend, but apparently Kubrick did see a therapist. And for some reason he said suge- that that therapist suggests to read the book, Trom Novelle, which was the basis for mm. eyes wide shut. Yeah. I don't know why it would be a therapy book, uh, but they're saying it was. He's having some some weird dreams. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Douglas, however, would not be the only person Kubrick did not get along with on set. Uh, as soon as he came onto the film, Stanley began having disagreements with the cinematographer, Russell Meddy. So, like Lucian Ballard on The Killing, Meddy was a Hollywood veteran who had shot such classic films as Bringing a Baby, Touch of Evil, and The Stranger for Orson Welles, and 11 wow. movies for Douglas Sirk including all that heaven allows wow. and the imitation of life some beautiful films like all that heaven allows yeah. all that heaven allows is one of the most beautiful films i've ever seen before many was accustomed to directors allowing him to call the shots when it came to cinematography so he didn't appreciate kubrick's unusually precise and detailed instructions for the film's camera work and disagreed with kubrick's use of light on one occasion he threatened to quit which kubrick's told him you can do your job by sitting in your chair and shutting up i'll be the director of photography <laughs> Meddy would end up not shooting most of the movie, wanting to take his name off the film because of it. Most of the film was shot by Kubrick. Um, Also, the studio wanted Kubrick to shoot 32 camera setups a day, while Kubrick planned to only shoot two setups a day. (laughs) Two setups a day. Two setups a day. (laughs) On a three-hour-long movie. Uh, they would compromise by doing eight setups a day. That's I don't know a, how much of a compromise that is. That's a Clint Eastwood schedule. Two setups yeah, a day? two setups a day. Um, but Kubrick was not the only source of drama on set. Apparently, several of the actors did not get along, especially Charles Lawton and Lawrence Olivier. Uh, Peter Ustinoff, I can see that. Yeah, Peter Ustinoff would later say that he would have to act as a buffer between the two because they hated each other so much. Um. The filming also went on for a long time, with many of the actors growing restless. Uh, Yusinov's daughter was born at the beginning of production, and he would joke that she would be getting out of kindergarten by the time the film wrapped. Apparently, <laughs> when dot when when uh later on when when people would ask his daughter what his, what her dad did for a living, she would respond Spartacus. <laughs> Tony Curtis apparently once said, "Who do you have to fuck to get off this picture?" um because it was so long and according to some reports actress gene simmons responded when you find out let me know um (laughs) so they apparently were did not like being there so the film would actually shoot um both in universal studios lot and in spain initially the studio want the studio wanted the entire movie to be shot on the lot to prove that you could shoot a big epic movie on the universal back lot um Mm -hmm. But Kubrick wanted to shoot on location to capture the scale of the story. They would compromise, allowing him to shoot some scenes in Spain and some scenes in uh, in Los Angeles. But even some of the scenes that were reshot that were shot in Spain were actually reshot on the back lot. One of the biggest ones being um, the scene of the dead bodies at the end after the big climactic battle. It's mm-hmm. weird because you see them using this big, massive shot of all these dead bodies that you can tell it's in the studio lot, and they'll cut to like a shot in Spain. And it's yeah. very it's very mm-hmm. odd. Apparently, though, what they did when they were shooting it, I think in Spain and maybe in, in Universal lot, Kubrick would place numbered flags by each actor so he could tell them the move he felt they didn't look right in camera. So he'd be like, <laughs> hey, number 163, move a little to your left. 
um, and things like that. So for Kubrick, uh, the post-production process didn't get much better for him because Douglas had creative control over the film. Kubrick was not able to have the final say on a lot of the major editing choices. Um, after the film's first few test screenings, the studio would cut several scenes out of the film, including the somewhat seduction scene between Olivier and Tony Curtis. And in this scene, it's basically Olivier is essentially making a pass Tony Curtis, saying that, like, mm-hmm. I want to have sex with you. Um, uh, what is it? I eat grapes and pomegranates. No, no, I, no I, I, eat, I eat oysters and snails, basically, is what yeah. it is. Uh, yeah. Wow. It's, it's like it's not about or it's like talking about taste and appetite. But he's like, do you eat oysters? And Curtis is like, yeah, I do that. And then it's like, what about snails? No. Um, <laughs> so when they so fun fact about this scene it was not in the the original cut it was added back in later on 1991 but they did not have the audio for the scene so curtis at the age of 66 re-recorded his audio really for that scene and also olivier had already passed away so they had to get another actor do you know which who which actor it was i do not it was anthony hopkins Really? Because apparently Anthony Hopkins worked with Olivier when he was younger in, in the theater world in England. And Hopkins apparently had could do a dead-on impersonation <laughs> of Olivier. And it was it was Olivier's widow uh, um, who suggested Hopkins. So Hopkins would actually record the audio for that scene. And it's very hard to tell. Like it's If you weren't told that's Hopkins, and even then it's hard to tell it. Because I don't really know Olivier's voice that well. It, it's it's not it's not easy to spot it's not easy to spot. yeah that's wild i feel like yeah. i need to go back and rewatch it I, yeah I, I went back and rewatched it. i was like yeah because because he what what kubrick does audio wise because he has an interesting thing where, where, the way he does audio in movies wherever the camera is is like this the kind of how you hear the audio it's like mm-hmm. i think in pads of glory when the camera's far away kurt douglas sounds very far away and mm-hmm. i know it's yeah. very simple but not everyone does this and then when you get close <laughs> up, he seems very closer. And so in that particular scene, the camera's at a distance. So there's kind of a reverb and echo in the scene. So it, it's hard to notice the difference in Olivier's voice in that moment. Um, so the film be released on October 6th, 1960, becoming a massive financial success and becoming one of the highest grossing films of 1960 and the highest grossing film from Universal Pictures up to that point. And it would hold that record until 1970, until the mo- when the movie Airport was released. But the film would receive a mixed reception from critics. Variety would say that Kubrick has out-demilled the old master in spectacle <laughs> without ever permitting the story or the people who are at the core of the drama to become lost in the shuffle. He demonstrates here a technical talent and comprehension of human values. But from the New York Times, from, from critic Bosley Crother, he called the film a spotty, uneven drama that comes out a romantic mishmash of a strange episode in history. The performances are equally uneven. Uh, Mr. Douglas sets his blunt horse opera style against the toe-clad <laughs> precision of Mr. Lawton and the Roman-nosed gentility of Mr. Olivier. Mm. Um, I do wonder if the film re- received a mixed reception at the time because of its ties to Dalton Trumbo. Uh, famed, famed gossip columnist Hedda Hopper would say the story was sold at Universal from a book written by Kami and the screen script was written by Kami so don't go see it <laughs> also the famed right wing actor John Wayne would protest the film 
calling it Marxist propaganda. Oh, of course. But even with the protests, the film would help lead to the end of the blacklist after President John F. Kennedy crossed the picket line to go see the film uh, when it was released. I think he was like president-elect at this point. Um, the film was nominated for six Academy Awards, winning four, four of them. Pierre Ustinov would win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, becoming the only actor Kubrick ever directed to win an Oscar. Also, Russell Meddy, who is the director of photography, would win Best Cinematography for the film, the only Oscar of his career, even though he did not shoot most of the film. <laughs> um, according to Stanley Kubrick, a biography from John Baxter, after the film was done, Douglas would later say that Kubrick uh, would be a fine director someday if he falls flat on his face just once. It might <laughs> teach him how to compromise. You don't have to be a nice person to be extremely talented. You can be a shit and be talented. And conversely, you can be the nicest guy in the world and not have any talent. Stanley Kubrick is a talented shit. Uh, they would never work again, work together again. Uh, if you're not, not surprised, not surprised by that. Um, not long after Stanley would actually disown the film because of his lack of creative control. But during the 1991 restoration, the team that was restoring it was told by, I think Spielberg. He's like, yeah, you guys should go ask Kubrick if he can get, if he'll like let you guys do this. And like, if he will take part in the restoration Kubrick did, and he would provide notes over phone and fax because he was living in England at the time. Um, after the film, Kubrick soon believed that he could make anything after making Spartacus because it was so difficult. But he soon realized that Hollywood was not a good fit for him, and it would be the last film that he would sh shoot part of in the United States. The rest of his films would be shot in England. Um, mm. When tackling their next project, Kubrick and producer James B. Harris would run off to England to get away from the suits. They'd also put in their project, they had creative control over whatever they filmed next. And that next film would be an adaptation of the controversial novel Lolita. So Thomas, what is Lolita about? If you had asked me, we would cover both Lolita if, films. If we this covered podcast. Lolita twice in one year. <laughs> I would say absolutely not. But here like, we I, are. I hope I hope we don't. But we did. Yeah. Twice. Twice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Lolita is about a uh it's narrated by a professor, Humbert Humbert, mm -hmm. who is lodging at this kind of he goes to this small town to kind of get away and do his work. Yeah. And um falls in love with the teenage daughter of his landlord mm -hmm. and through some very devious machinations uh becomes her stepfather and basically kidnaps her and becomes her stepfather slash lover and and learns that being a stepfather slash lover is not everything it's cracked up to be yep <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah it's it's how to how to how to put lolita into words um but it's it's kind of a dark comedy kind Movie, of yeah yeah uh for uh, th th yeah there's this whole question of with the book uh, the the there's a lot of kind of mystery surrounding the the writer and this idea yeah. of like is it meant to be a comedy is it meant to be taken seriously is yeah is humbert humbert is often studied as kind of the 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 first kind of major pop culture example of an unreliable narrator um so it's a it's a well-respected and and also very hated novel source material and and just controversial all over the place and kubrick would decide to tackle it um like you said it, it this one plays in comparison to adrian lyons version 
this one's mm-hmm. way more comedic when lines yes. is more like straight serious is the thing yes um yep. and we'll and we'll discuss which is better or not but yeah kubrick makes it a little bit more comical and he also has to deal a lot more with censorship at this point because the production code mm-hmm. is still still in existence um so the uh, the film script is credited to the novel's original author vladimir nabokov but almost none of the script was actually used um apparently his script was over 400 pages long when it was being shopped around hollywood never never have the writer <laughs> adapt his, his own work basically just passed around the novel but in script form essentially yeah. uh producer james b harris would later say that it was unfilmable not just because of its length but because of the content um so harris and kubrick would actually rewrite the script together making sure it fit within the censorship rules of the time uh james mason was the producing duo's first choice for humbert humbert but he turned the movie down because he was committed to play do a play already uh kubrick would then go to Lawrence olivier who would turn the role down uh he considered peter Houston offer the role but he later decided not to offer it to them uh some say Cary grant was offered the role and he turned it down uh, along with david niven uh and then rex harrison and famed playwright noel coward were considered but then james mason reconsidered dropping out of the play to do the movie i feel like i'd be so creeped out by rex harrison as number number. <laughs> but what about Cary grant though what about Cary Grant? I, I, it would have been, been very odd little, for Cary Grant. I think he's a little too likable. Like, yeah, yeah I agree. He yeah, he's got yeah. too much charisma. I think. I think you're kind. Of, I mean, you're not really supposed to like Humbert. Humbert is the thing. No, um, absolutely not. And I think Cary Grant would just be too too charming in any role that he does. And I feel like Grant's like, I'm not playing this role. This is creepy as hell. Um. But yeah, so Kubrick, when in terms of casting the character of Lolita, Kubrick would would audition over 800 girls for the role. Um, he eventually des- decided upon Sue Lyon, a young 14 year old or 13 year old model originally from Dallas, Texas. Uh, Lyon got the role after Kubrick raised the age of Lolita to 14 from 12, which was in the novel, uh, in order to appease the censors. I don't know how that was a big difference to appease the censors, 12 to 14. Um, Shelley Winters was cast as Charlotte Hazley, his mother and future Mrs. Humbert. Uh, at the time, apparently, uh, Winters was heavily involved in John F. Kennedy's election campaign. Second reference to John F. Kennedy today on this podcast. <laughs> uh, Kubrick had told her to read the book in preparation for the film. And allegedly, Kennedy saw her reading it while they were on the campaign trail. And he asked her to cover the bo- or, or cover up the book cover with a brown paper bag so he would not lose the election because of the book. <laughs> Uh, so with the cast in place, let's move the favorite scenes. So Thomas, do you have a favorite se- or some favorite scenes of this movie? <laughs> um, uh, oh God. Um, I mean, y- y- here's the thing. It, yeah. It, like you were saying, they play it very differently from the Adrian Lane version. And, they do. and the, probably the biggest difference between the two is, is the way that Quilty, the, the yes. kind of antagonist of the, of the story is depicted yes um and and we discussed it a little bit in adrian Lyons' version but it's this he's this kind of very mysterious figure yep. who's always kind of cloaked in shadow because ultimately the 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 twist of the story is that he's been following humbert for um, goes on years years yeah and kind of 
machinating everything that happens in his life in order to get his hooks on Lolita, which yeah. is ulti- the the ultimate irony of of you know this story is that Humbert Humbert goes out of his way to be Lolita's stepfather and slash lover, and and he's out he's out uh, he, witted yeah witted he's by out this. he's out tra- pedophiled by by <laughs> Quilty, who's just a better better at it than he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah so the adrian lynn version he's this like very mysterious anytime anytime that uh humbert humbert's able to see him he's like kind of cloaked in shadow and he doesn't even know what his face looks like because there's this line in the book that's like since it's being narrated by humbert humbert he's like it might seem to anyone in the audience i don't want to hear you say how obvious it was that quilty was pulling the strings in my life all this time because yeah it's easy to sit back as an audience member and, and say this but to me like i, I had no idea and yeah. and so it's it's really interesting to see the the two different ways they choose to represent him because in in this version in the kubrick version it's peter sellers and he's presented as this kind of eccentric playwright who likes to play characters yeah and so every time he presents himself to humbert he is quite literally in disguise and yeah. you know the first time he meets him he's this like w- like weird creepy cop character oh yeah and then, uh, he, and then he comes cop. to him is this like <laughs> you might you might be you might feel a little awkward around me but because i'm a cop but i'm a nice cop yeah um and then he and then he comes to him as this like german psychiatrist principal school yeah. counselor character but who's also and, from america by the way like the way he is america he's like oh here in america or whatever we cause that, <laughs> there's weird stuff because like because mason's british like he has a mm-hmm. british accent in the movie sellers has a german accent in that movie but they're like he says we're in america or he's from mm-hmm. america but they're, and it's very odd of like because then shelly winters is american accent sue lyons Amer- it's very all over the place with the mm-hmm. accents in this movie um so yeah but yeah there's so there's this kind of like master of disguise kind of aspect yes. he's always kind of playing a character every time he, he presents himself yeah um so very very different approaches to that character um and you, you might recall and also very different approaches to the structure because yes uh you might recall if you're a listener to the podcast my favorite scene from the previous version was when he finally confronts quilty and kind of realizes because he's played so like mysterious and foreboding in the in the line version when he finally meets him and realizes that he's a you know a, a, a nut yeah a random, <laughs> like, a random ass dude who has weird yeah, yeah. like like a human form of bugs bunny yeah um it's it's it is, it is like a shock and that scene yeah. is insane yeah he's <laughs> running around like nude through this house yeah. while while uh, humbert's trying to shoot him and that and, piano, and the, so, the, 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 the piano playing on its own type yes. thing, yeah, yeah. And and so this one, this movie actually opens with the yeah. the murder, yeah. And and it's played in this way that like like Quilty is like so drunk that he can't figure out what's going on, and then he's just kind of doing this almost like Robin Williams kind of shtick, like yeah. jumping from all his characters, yeah. And and Sellers is great. Sellers is great in this. Sellers and this is, great, is yes. obviously where you can see Kubrick go like oh this is a lot of fun just having yeah. peter sellers play all these characters yeah um but yeah the, to, to answer your question the, my favorite scenes are, are those involving peter, peter sellers, sellers. In, this, <laughs> in this movie for sure yes the opening we'll talk about that real quick because because that was not i think initially intended for the um um uh, the opening to be the ending of the film i think mm-hmm. kubrick felt that the movie dragged in the middle 
mm. of the film. And he felt like if he started with the ending of the movie, it would at least like hook the audience and have them interested in those characters till the end of like, yeah. Oh God, how do well, we get it, here? It does also show you like, you know, um, it does kind of establish like by the end of the movie, this man will be capable of murder, yeah. which then lets you kind of go back and see him as this unreliable kind of villain character from the start. Yeah. Whereas you, you can see with, with, with the way that Lynn plays it and, 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 you know, he's doing it on purpose is like, he opens it as this like sweeping romance, just a sweeping romance between a grown man and a preteen yeah. girl. Yeah. yeah. And then you kind of have it get, have this guy kind of spiral further and further and further out of control. Yeah. Um, with this one it kind of opens with you're like oh this guy this guy's awful and and yeah. you know the way he, he he treats uh shelly winters kind of from the from the start is just you know it's contemptuous and, and yeah. cruel and um yeah another, yeah another kind of funny scene where you can see that this this film's being played for comedy a lot more is the um when he's in the tub after Shelly Winters has died and like all these people are coming to visit him. Yeah. And he's and just they, in the tub. Yeah. And they, and like, it's everyone's coming. It's like, they see the governor. Like, hey, don't do like, she, she was really sick. You just didn't know this. Like, don't. Yeah. And he's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I, you're right. I would never do that. And you're like, he wasn't going to kill himself. He was, he was very happy that his wife was now dead. Um, yeah. And then you have like the, the father of the son that, that, that that killed that accidentally killed uh Shirley mm -hmm. winners and he's like oh like i he was like ready to come to battle about it like oh my my son was not follows oh yeah you're right your son was not follows oh yeah, no no it's fine really it's fine okay <laughs> he's like well i can at least pay for the funeral oh that's fine and the guy's <laughs> like okay i thought this would be way more difficult than what it is but okay <laughs> <laughs> he's like okay i'll leave now yeah it's it's, it's yeah um and he definitely, I mean, it's like he definitely tried, compared to Line, he definitely tries to make Lolita a little bit older. Like, mm -hmm. he tries to make her, even when, even though she's portrayed at 14, he tries to, like, make it not as obvious that she's 14. But all, mm -hmm. but he, he, it's like, it's weird. Like, cause he tries, he definitely sexualizes her. But, like, Line's version is so uncomfortable because like she is like she's like braces and like very much like played yeah. to be very young um, yes um which is what i i i like better about lines version is that it is not it, and and this is you know probably not kubrick's fault and probably more the censor's fault but in yeah. trying to skirt around the censors yeah a lot of it comes off as kind of cheeky yes and like with with lines it is just like he is like this is creepy like yeah, this, this is, is creepy how, as hell. He, he puts you in a lot of time he does a lot of these like kind of pov shots like yeah. lingering on her and from uh humbert's point of view and you're just like i, I don't want to i don't want to be in this pov at yeah, all yeah. anymore get me out of this please yeah and and so yeah and, and, and yeah like i said i don't necessarily think it's in kubrick's adaptation as much as like you know and how how we know censors were at that time but yeah. um yeah anytime it is kind of anytime something's kind of like played off screen yeah it's like done kind of cheekily and that just feels even grosser than having it presented yeah. to you yeah because she'll she'll make comments like oh well you're the one to talk or like she'll say about yeah. him like very much implying that they have a sexual relationship together but it's all it's all it's all done very cheeky very it's very like coy is kind of the thing they're trying to go for yeah um 
it's or it's the like uh there's the one part when uh when they're they're leaving the hotel or whatever and he's like well you know we got started really late today because of what we did like kind of what we did like it's very much yeah. like and then she, she's like oh and should i call and tell mom and he's like i don't think we should and yeah, i'm just like no, no it's very odd um but again with this movie like spartacus like it feels still like somewhat of a hollywood movie in a weird way like i think there's some again great shots i feel like every one of his films mm-hmm. has a great shot in it i love the like kind of the uh, the um the aerial shots of the cars like the the tracking mm-hmm. shots of the cars again early shining-esque in a way where like they're mm-hmm. coming in and you're following humbert humbert's car up to the mansion but it's in this like haze and fog and it's really really kind of um almost foreboding in a way um but it's done very well but then there's just like random scenes of like weird narration that feel very mm-hmm. much of the time and he tries to do some stuff with that narration like there's one scene where like i think he's 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 talking about something and you're just seeing like the actions of winter downstairs when uh, Shelley winter's downstairs it's just an interesting kind of the way he juxtaposes it sometimes it's, it's interesting but it, it's still mm-hmm. very just like conventional in a way yeah. but you can see him like liking working with peter sellers is the yes. thing um that's very apparent um he also makes the switch of making it modern for the for mm-hmm. the time when the story i think in lion's version it was very much earlier uh yeah in the 40s yeah 40s or 30s but he makes it more early 60s and that that almost feels even more odd too like in a <laughs> way um but yeah you're you're but you're beginning to see his like the like sexual perversion that he will play with a little bit in some of his later films, like say eyes wide shut or even clockwork orange, like these kind of like weird taboo things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very much, it's an odd, it's an odd film. It's an odd film. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's not his, his kind of like, it's interesting. Like you said, it is kind of shot a little bit more, um, traditionally yeah. it's in, in that that like harsh lighting that we saw in mm-hmm. his first three films is going to come back in his next film but yeah. like it just just kind of went away like when, when yeah. you were talking about him having this other dp for spartacus i was like oh that makes sense like maybe that guy you know he and the gaffer got together and kind of nixed that kind of lighting but then yeah you, and but then you're like oh but kubrick shot, set up yeah. all the shots um so yeah i'm, I'm not sure but it's it's interesting to that it that that style he kind of was yeah. like all right let's let's try some other stuff and then he comes back to it for uh dr strangelove but yeah i think ultimately as much as i enjoyed sellers in this i do think ultimately the i think the adrian line version is the better <laughs> adaptation from my point of view i i agree i agree just slightly i think i think it's just it it it's it has stronger a stronger perspective on what the themes and the like uh line has a a clear view of what he thinks of humbert and what he's trying Mm -hmm. to show you and it's uncomfortable not because it's cringy or awkward and how it's done it's because line knows how to shoot that um i think kubrick has said that like i think he was trying to go more eroticism in in his version of lolita 
but not in like a, a negative way. When I think lying was mm-hmm. more like, we'll do the eroticism, but I want you guys to know this is creepy as hell, but we're just going to show you what this person is seeing, but we're going to exactly. make you feel uncomfortable because of what we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. I do, I do love when finding out that Kubrick hated the I am Spartacus line in Spartacus and then Sellers actually says it in, it in the opening. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Almost making fun of it is the thing. I was like, wow, Cooper getting meta here all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Comment on how much of a stupid line that is, in his opinion. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like with this and Spartacus, he is definitely trying to, even though this was shot in England, I think he was trying to fit into what Hollywood expected in some way. Even though he right. had debates with cinematographers, I think he was still trying to make conventional film in some way and fit in and not actually be himself. And we'll talk more about that in the next one. Um, mm-hmm. So when it comes to the onset live Lolita, uh, if you thought there weren't any conflicts, you would be wrong. Um, apparently Kubrick and Shelley winners did not get along. And he even considered firing her at one point because of how much they disliked one another. According to cinematographer Oswald Morris, she said she was very difficult wanting to do everything her own way. At one point, Kubrick said to me, I think the lady is going to have to go. Um, and speaking of director of photography, Oswald Morris, Kubrick also had a stormy relationship with him. Uh, allegedly some images from the film leaked the local press in England and Kubrick blamed Morris for leaking them because he was responsible for the film's footage every day, but well, it was that used to happen back then. Yeah. Yeah. In 62. Yeah. Or 60. It's, yeah. like, it's like film, film Twitter now. Like, Oh, look yeah. at this suit from the from Barbie. MCU movie. Yeah. It was yeah, like, Oh, whatever. look at this frame from Lolita. And they're like, and he's like, how dare you? So, but it was later discovered that it was a junior assistant at the film's processing lab. And, but it seems that Kubrick never apologized to Morris and Morris vowed not to work with him again. Uh, but even with all that in his autobiography, Morris stated that although it was a very uneasy relationship, I tried to make allowances for this wayward behavior because I admired his energy and brilliance so much. But if you want to hear about a good relationship on set, it was between Kubrick and Peter Sellers. Stanley <laughs> was very much impressed by Sellers' talent at improv, so Kubrick would allow him to ad-lib his lines, lines which is how the character of Quilty was formed. They built him out on set instead of in the actual script beforehand. Stanley would realize that Sellers' best take was always in the first take, is what I heard. And then I read that in Strange Love, he thought his his last takes were best. I don't know. So it's a very debated <laughs> thing. But anyway, he would set up two to three cameras each time to capture Sellers' performance, making sure he didn't miss any angles and he can capture the entire mm-hmm. improv. Um, also, it's, Sellers was, I think, said that he based the character's main voice off of Stanley Kubrick's voice. Um, <laughs> the film would be released on June 13th, 1962, when unsurprisingly, it was met with a mixed critical reception, mainly due to the highly controversial uh, subject matter, uh, even with the cuts. The film received very little advertisement, relying solely on word of mouth, so it was nowhere near the hit of Spartacus, but it was success, grossing $4.5 million in its initial run, against a two million dollar budget it's crazy how that was considered a success back then and now that would Mm -hmm. be a massive failure um when looking (laughs) back on the film kubrick would later say he had several regrets feeling that he didn't truly capture the relationship between lolita and humbert uh he would later state that he would probably not have made the film if he had realized how much he would have to change in order to please the censors yeah 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 agreed 
Lolita also would mark the last collaboration between Stanley Kubrick and producer James B. Harris. Yeah. I talked about this briefly uh, during an episode on The Killing, but the two did break up, due, not really due to major differences. There was one issue that would occur that made them kind of separate, um, but Stanley thought it might be a good idea if the two would go off and make solo projects on top of making their projects together. Kubrick, Harris was the one that wanted to leave. Kubrick encouraged him to do this, but he also told him that this business can be lonely and sticking together might be smart because they would share both the successes and failures together. Uh, they would remain good friends until Stanley's passing in 1999. But one of the reasons the two separated was because the disagreement over the tone of Kubrick's next film. <laughs> when Harris said he didn't want to become a bad producer by telling Kubrick how to shoot his movie, Kubrick then told him maybe it was time to, that he tried directing. It would seem that Kubrick would learn how to produce a movie because of his partnership with Harris, and Harris would learn how to direct a movie, go on and direct, I think, five films in his career. Oh. Um, he's still alive there at the age of 93. So there you go. Um, but now that Harris got, with, with Harris being gone, Kubrick was alone in his next movie. It would be the first time in his career where he served as the director, a writer, and the producer of one of his movies. And when looking at that, this is where I think the legend of Stanley Kubrick was fully formed and born. Yes. That leads us to Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Thomas, what is Dr. Strangelove about? Uh, <laughs> Dr. Strangelove is about a, a kind of conspiracy theory uh, airbase commander who decides yeah. to exploit a loophole allowing him to launch a nuclear attack on Russia and basically usher in complete global annihilation yep. uh, based <laughs> off of the fact that he thinks he's being sapped of his precious bodily fluids. Um, <laughs> and just kind of the fallout. It, it's a political farce as yeah. if, if the, you know, impending nuclear war didn't, didn't bring that to mind, but yeah, just about kind of the political fallout of all these, military and political yeah. leaders trying to stop the inevitable as as they're watching a missile head towards uh russian yeah the, the movie actually i think forced the u.s government to be like yo we should make sure this doesn't happen <laughs> it, you know it <laughs> watching it watching it now it had been a while since i, I watched yeah. it and i'm sure he would be very flattered by this comparison but it, it does kind of play like you can see how much adam mckay takes from this yep. like it does yep. kind of play like yep. a big short where it's like this is a joke but this <laughs> all really happened and this is exactly how it could yep. go down kind of thing and, and, and i think don't look up he was trying to capture this dr strange love vibes in it but it almost felt i mean that's a separate thing but it felt like i i, I wonder if, if that will age better with time because i feel like mm -hmm. we we're very in the heat of what they were talking about and it didn't feel like it was like i think i said like the stuff that said don't look up feels like because we went through so much stuff with COVID that it almost mm -hmm. just felt too like too real and not in a fun way. Um, <laughs> but I wonder what time will tell with that movie. But yeah, I agree. It does very much have like, this is, we're doing a serious topic, but it's so outlandish. Like you can't help but laugh at it. It's right. the like, yeah. And, and also again with Peter Sellers, it, it, that brings that out of it is the thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So at the end of the 50s and early 60s, Stanley became fascinated and worried about nuclear war 
and the continuing conflict between America and Russia in the Cold War. When he was living in New York, I think he actually felt like they were, that New York would be like a big target for a nuclear war. That fascination soon turned into research for a possible story, and he began working on an idea that was a serious thriller about nuclear war. He subscribed to several aviation and atomic scientist magazines while also reading, I think he read close to 50 books on nuclear war <laughs> and the research of it. One of the books suggested to him was a book titled Red Alert, written by a Royal Air Force uh, written by a Royal Air Force uh, navigator, uh, Peter George, I think under the pseudonym Peter Bryant, because he didn't want people to know that he was he was still employed by the, the government in England. <laughs> uh, he was writing that. Uh, in the book, uh, it takes place in three different locations, the war room, a military base, and a B-52 bomber, and it tells the story, as you said, of an accidental nuclear war that would occur. Um, it's told in a very serious fashion. Um, Red Alert would become the basis for Dr. Strangelove, but while Kubrick was writing the first script, he realized he was cutting out some of the most authentic elements of the story because he thought the audiences would laugh at how how over or how unrealistic <laughs> it seemed. Uh, it was it was at this point he said he began to view the film as a nightmare comedy and began writing it as such. Um, and one of the and one of the initial drafts of the film, the film actually has a weird like early found footage vibe. It was going to be hmm. like a record. It was basically going to be a recorded record found by aliens on a dead planet called earth. <laughs> and they would see how the end of the world happened. Um, not long after Kubrick decided the film be a black comedy now titled Dr. Doomsday, not Dr. <laughs> Strangelove. He brought on novelist Terry Southern who had written the novel, the magic Christian, a book Kubrick received from Peter Sellers as a gift one year. A few years later, Sellers would actually star in the film version of the novel, uh, co-starring Ringo Starr in one of his rare acting roles. Right. Um, when talking about Strangelove in an interview, Kubrick felt it was better to say it was better to work with a co-writer because you could bounce ideas off one another, and it actually would keep him motivated. Apparently, um, it, it's interesting going back to his school days where he would be uninterested, or he would easily get uninterested in a project or something. Mm -hmm. Feels somewhat like this. Um, but Terry Southern would help add a more co uh, comic side to the story. Um, Southern's contribution, however, would later cause a rift between Kubrick and Red Alert's original author, Peter George, who had written some of the script, but he had claimed that he was the sole writer of the novel and script at one point, um, and that Southern only worked for a short time on the film. Now, when it came to financing the film, Columbia Pictures agreed to put the money as long as the film starred Peter Sellers, and that he would play four roles within the film. They believed the financial success of Lolita was because was based solely on Sellers and his multiple performances, and they they, they wanted Kubrick to repeat that same exact uh, technique. Uh, Kubrick agreed, but later I think said that he couldn't believe he did because it was such an outrageous ask. Uh, mm -hmm. Sellers would receive one million dollars for the film. Wow taking up over half the film's $1.8 million budget. Oh my God. Kubrick would later joke, I got three for the price of six. <laughs> I'll talk more about that fourth character Sellers was supposed to play later on, but let's talk yeah. about favorite scenes here. Um, okay, yeah. So one thing that I think, and this, this will lead into some of my favorite scenes, yeah. one thing that I think is so special about this movie in both the general consensus of films and also within Peter Sellers mm -hmm. career, because 
little back a little bit of backstory i was obsessed with the pink panther movies when i was a kid yeah loved them i had the like full disc set all of them even the ones people hate the later years well as long as peter sellers was still in them, and, I was them yeah, them. yeah yeah um and so many of those are just peter sellers vehicles it is yeah. him it, it you know it feels a lot like some of those robin williams films or even like mike myers films where it's just like here's someone with an insane amount of comedic energy let's just set them loose and mm-hmm. let them act or jim carrey you know let them act circles around everyone here that this movie doesn't do that yeah this movie pairs him a lot of times it's the straight man you know two two out yeah. of his three characters are the straight, straight man, man in this movie yeah which is kind of insane to say like we're getting <laughs> peter sellers we're gonna have him play these you know, like three different characters before you know four three um yeah yeah and then to to make them the straight man and then be like, oh, and we're getting George C. Scott and Sterling Hayden and they're going to be the outlandish, the guys. ridiculous ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what's so great about this, because Peter Sellers plays a fantastic straight man in the way only a comedian can. Yeah. And and then he's just letting George C. Scott and Sterling Hayden especially be like absolutely unhinged. <laughs> and it's it's so good. So with that being said, I think you know a lot of the you know the sterling hayden stuff the the his his like real speech about his precious bodily fluids and and, uh uh, withholding his essence from women is is just so good and peter sellers as mandrake is just like oh yes oh right yes yes jack yes and then at a certain point it's like oh this man's crazy like And he's got that great, like when 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 they're finally defeated, and and like everyone except for Mandrake knows that Jack is about to go kill himself, and he's just like, "Yes, Jack. Oh, you dropped your gun, Jack. Let me get that for you, Jack. Why yeah. don't we? Oh, yes, get a nice hot towel, and uh, you know that's just what we need. And then you'll give me get a nice hot towel, and then we'll have the code. You'll give me the code, <laughs> and then just shoot. Jack, Jack, and <laughs> trying to open it's the door. So to get There's so many great lines from Sterling Hayden in this movie. He's like, you ever see a commie drink water? <laughs> <laughs> they only drink vodka. <laughs> I'm coughing. Oh, man. He's really great. It's like, oh, man. Hayden's so good. I mean, everyone's good in this, but yeah, Hayden, Hayden's just so... Like I love the shot that he does of like the Hayden, like the the like the camera angle low of like Hayden's down face. below. He's just got that yeah, giant cigar. Giant cigar. In his mouth. Oh god. Yeah. Oh man. But yeah, I just yeah. Sellers. But one of my favorite things with Sellers is his call to Dimitri, the Russian prime, yes. uh, whatever. Yes. No, Dimitri. No. How are you doing, Dimitri? Oh, that's great. I'm yes. doing great. Have a, I'm glad. Is... I'm glad you're doing great. <laughs> yes. No, I do like calling you. I yeah. Mean... I don't just call not, you when, when there's a crisis. Yes, yes, um, I'm, yeah. I'm calling. I'm, why, why would I call you, Dimitri? This is happening. <laughs> of course, I'd call you when we were just wanting to talk. I get. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I know, Dimitri. I know. I think. I think that scene. You know, there's he. he Sellers is is doing like every type of comedy possible in this movie, yes, which yeah. is which is why it's such a powerhouse. But that scene is one of the greatest comedic performances, yeah. and he's doing it by himself. Self, you know. Yeah yeah it, it is it is him having a conversation with himself and it goes on for so long and i mean you and you do get these great cutaways to george c scott like chewing the absolute shit out of his, his stick of gum uh, and just some fantastic little reaction shots which we will we'll, we'll come back to how insane george c scott is in this movie but yeah that that's that phone conversation is so incredible and it is yeah. just it is just peter sellers with a with an empty phone and yeah. it is so good 
and probably getting no lines back from who like he's yeah. probably just doing yeah. it on his own yeah well, I, I think Dimitri. that's kind of the strength of it you know yeah. if you because it it does it feels so spontaneous and yes and i think if there was someone back feeding him lines back on the other end he, he wouldn't be able to it, it's, it's for, definitely ad-libbed yeah. to a certain extent you know and and the the rhythm and the way he's oh he's interrupted here sometimes and sometimes he's trying to speak over him and like it's it, it, it is a it is a master class he went and did a silly thing well i'll tell you what he did he ordered his planes to attack your country uh, well let me finish dimitri let me finish dimitri well listen how do you think i feel about it can you imagine how i feel about it dimitri why do you think i'm calling you just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. And then, and then he plays Strange Love against, like, and then you yeah. have like him again, very early version of like him playing two characters in the same scene. And yeah. ones who's so like really a cartoonish villain, yes, with strange yeah. love. It's and just then... absolutely ridiculous. Like maybe a little bit too much, but it's it's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. It works. But now and and again going with George T. Scott because I I love George T. Scott in this movie too. Um, and he has the great entrance of like when he's like in the bathroom and his like his assistants mm-hmm. like sunbathing on the bed or whatever. Yeah. And he's he comes just up like, and like slaps his belly. So. Yeah, take a message. He just keeps like, and they, and he keeps like just like relaying messages back to her. You're like you can just get on the mm-hmm. phone. This be way easier than what we're doing here. Of you screaming from the bathroom, and then finally he's like, ah, damn it, and comes out, uh, and um, to to talk about it, um, and then and yeah, and then she calls him later when he's in the warm. He's like, Don't, I told you not to call me here. Like, of course uh, I care about you. Of course, of course I care it's not you. just physical. <laughs> And like you can see, like they cut away where you can tell like everyone else can hear. Him. And Sellers just like looking at him, like, <laughs> Mr. President, he'll see everything. He'll, he'll see it. the big board. Yeah, he's taking pictures. And I, and I love I, again. I love when he's like listing like seven reasons why I should actually strike first against Russia. Mm-hmm. It's like he's like reasons like set number seven. Uh, because of this, like he just keeps going um and yeah and he had the classic line in that sequence of like gentlemen you can't fight in here that's a war room um yeah you've got the great like feels very speaking of organic the like somersault trip thing he does okay when he's, he's like running back at the board and like trips and flips over himself and pops back up and just keeps going oh yeah because that was not supposed to happen he actually yeah. just tripped over and fell and kubrick thought he did it on purpose that's why he kept it but apparently scott mm. did not mean to do that <laughs> He just did it. Um, yeah, he like, he just progressively gets like more unhinged as the movie like goes mm-hmm. on. Is the thing? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think the best, you know, for his character, the the peak of his character is when, you know, they're all like, they they're like, you know, we've given the Russians everything they could to stop this plane. Is there a yeah. chance that they could get through? And he's like, by God, they could. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh wait, that's a bad thing. He's not as crazy as Hayden, but he's definitely on the verge of just like, eh, I can see his point. Like, mm-hmm. but then, and then, yeah, but, and then you had that scene at the end when like strange love is like after they can't stop anymore after the bombs mm-hmm. kind of happen and strange loves like, 
we can get a bunker and like and like and 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 and, and uh they'll be like what was the ratio of like five to one ten 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 women to every man ten and women Buck, to every Buck's like oh mm, oh yeah, yeah. he's he's like but the women thing uh president that that could be this could be interesting interesting thing for us we have to move away from the societal norms of monogamy <laughs> and then speaking of oh no that's saying like too it's it's i think when uh, when Mandrake's trying to call them to give him the code or whatever, and I think he need, he mm-hmm. needs money, and he's trying to, and the soldier he's on that soldier, and the soldier's like, uh, if 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 that's not the right code, or if, if you're if you're lying, you have to apologize to the people Coca Cola when he like busts <laughs> the Coca Cola thing over to get the quarters. <laughs> you, per- the I think you, I, I think you're a prevert, and I think that Colonel Ripper found out about your preversions. <laughs> um and then let's talk about briefly slim pickens in this movie too mm-hmm. uh who's right who's i think i think the classic image of this movie is him riding the missile mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> at the end of the film like he's well, riding shoot, a bull a fella could have a good weekend in las vegas with these that i, I there's there's something to go with that line later i'll bring mm-hmm. it up later but there's something to, to that goes with that um but yeah pickens is it's 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 funny because like james Earl jones is in the role uh, said that he thought that Slim Pickens was was staying in character on on set when he wasn't shooting, and then James <laughs> L. Jones realized that's just the way Slim Pickens was. Yeah, no, he's as a just person. playing Slim Pickens as a he's fighter playing, pilot. Yeah, it's basically what it is. And Jones like, oh, he's not method acting. <laughs> he's just being himself. He's not really acting at all. <laughs> yeah, he's just doing. Oh hell, yeah. He's just he's just in it. Um. But yeah, and then, but yeah, I think when you see this movie, it's very much Kubrick's like the beginning of that second wave, which would mm-hmm. end up being his big wave, uh, because yeah. you see how even on apparently such a low budget compared to some, like with with he since sellers are taking a million dollars the budget, um, <laughs> what they do with the set. And it really is. He really only uses like three sets, like for the most mm-hmm. part. Like he has a few extra ones, like swings, like the kind of separate sets of like an office here or whatever. But like it's the the war room sequence, and then it's the beef to bomber, and then it's the office scene with Sterling Hayden and Mantra mm-hmm. are kind of your three sec uh, three sets. But you have that satirical view, that cynical view of the world, uh, the kind of dark humor. Um, you also have again this military war mm-hmm. uh theme that kind of runs throughout but I, it almost feels like going that collaboration with harris even though i think if harris and kubrick would have stayed together longer i think kubrick would have made more films because he had that producing partner who helped develop stuff with co- consistently mm-hmm. and i think they worked well together for the most part um but i think H- harris leaving really made kubrick form like form and evolve into what he would become essentially because he was yeah. he felt yeah. kind of all alone in a way and he would have to trust his instincts even more than what he did before is the thing um right. and i think this is kind of the like beginning of that chapter for him yeah i just i i think like you were saying i think this visually this represents some kind of getting back to his initial style yeah but the kind of the reason i think of this as the real like beginning is is this kind of what i think of of kubrick is this one this like kind of like genre mashup kind of thing that he does where it's like you know 
who who does a, a war movie is like a complete farce yeah um but also this kind of pervading feeling of this man just going i'm gonna do whatever i want with this yeah yeah i i'm going to give you exactly what's on my mind and i don't care if it's what you want out of it and mm-hmm. and there was in kind of all his previous movies there was this kind of like you know i'm trying to be like someone who's hungry someone who's trying to make it and like what do you what do you want to see what do you want me to yeah. make and then i think from just from now on it is just i'm i'm making the vision that's in my head and it is yeah. like uncompromising and I, yeah. I, I think you know i think uncompromising is a word that a lot of people associate with, with stanley him. kubrick yeah and and you know that that means you know from now on that means like if it's going to get weird it's going to get weird if i want it to be funny yeah it's going to be funny like it's it's yeah. just all going to get mishmashed in the way that he wants it and and i think this is you know as we're going chronologically this is the first one where you're just like oh this is this is unfettered yeah. stanley kubrick from yeah. the visuals to the voice to everything about it yeah it's a good point brand like he's is like, oh i see this going in a comedic way instead of being like oh no that seems odd let's he try and fight tries to fight to get back to a thriller he's like oh no mm-hmm. let's just go that way let's just see what happens and that's why i think what happened with a lot of his films later on in life is that he would take a lot of time trying to find that tone because i think what's so what makes him what made him so amazing at what he did was how he can master tone of a film like that's the thing is that he can he can balance the comedy but also drama of dr strange love in a way but mostly lean towards comedy um mm-hmm. or you can you can like again talking about the war sequences or the horror and the shining um or and like in eyes wide shut like the way he balances the tone it, it it's a lot of times he's walking a very tight rope where it right. could fall one way and be cringy or be whatever, but he somehow manages to pull it off. Um, and I think as he would get older, he would spend more and more time thinking about how to make that work in all of his movies. Why eyes wide shut was like more of a comedy at first. And even though it's still somewhat a comedy at the end, he still does it in a way that it's, it's not a laugh out loud, like, Hey, look at the joke here type thing. Um, right. But yeah, so the film began shooting in London at Shepperton Studios in 1963. Uh, the main reason why they would shoot in England, and I think like Kubrick was was living now at this time or working there. Uh, the reason they planned on shooting in the U.S. though, uh, but the reason why I couldn't leave was that Sellers was in the middle of a divorce, his first from his first wife, and he couldn't leave the country mm-hmm. because of that. Um, prior to the reason why I got a million dollars for this movie, uh, <laughs> as well in a very similar fashion, uh, as it was Lolita Sellers and Kubrick worked together very well, bonding over their love for photography. Um, Kubrick would allow sellers to ad lib as much as he wanted later going back and adding lines, the final script that seller would sellers would say, kind of making it seem like it was part of the script all along. Um, one of the most significant improvised scenes in the, is in the final scene of the movie when Sellers as Dr. Strangelove exclaims, my Fuhrer, I can walk. <laughs> uh, according to Kubrick, Peter said he couldn't promise to do the same thing twice and he couldn't do anything more than two or three times. So the day we did the sequence, I had six cameras lined up and he came in and no one knew what he was going to do himself included. He just kind of essentially rift essentially for that entire ending yeah, scene and there's just that that whole ongoing thing that like his his one hand is like actively <laughs> working judged. against him yeah 
to the well, point where it's literally starting just literally trying to kill him cause, well because basically well basically what it is is that everything he's saying is starting to sound like it's the third reich right when he's like pitching his ideas and the natural thing is like i'm gonna do the heil like heil yeah. hitler thing and he's like no i'm not there anymore i gotta <laughs> stay i'm not i'm not german i'm not a nazi i gotta do this and he, and the hand's like no you gotta do it you're pitching the third reich stuff um and yeah so it's actively fighting against him because of it but he's just he's like convulsing in his chair trying to make sure his hand doesn't go up uh it's fantastic uh and like i said earlier sellers was to play four roles can you guess the fourth role because it isn't the movie i i i, oh, I unfortunately I, I knew this one ahead of time ah. yes he was supposed to be uh the slim pickens character he's supposed to be slim pickens uh sellers at first was major kong is the character name sellers was hesitant about playing the role because he didn't think he can master the texas accent the character had since terry southern one of the one of the writers was from texas or was from the south kubrick got him to record the lines for sellers to listen to sellers would then agree to do the role but while filming in the b-52 bomber set sellers would hurt his ankle making it difficult for him to move in such a tight tight set uh kubrick would have would have to scramble do you know who he offered the role to for the for the for slim pickens hmm. i don't know or, or for for major Con for slim pickens he quickly offered the role to John Wayne, who quickly declined it. Um, that feels like a troll offer. It does feel like a troll. Like, you just protested my last film. Let me offer you this role in my next film. That's also people would call communist. Uh, speaking of that, they offered he offered it to Dan Blocker, who was one of the stars of Bonanza. Uh, but his agents claimed the movie was too communist, uh, or too pinko, as they, uh, as they said. Um, Kubrick would then remember an actor he briefly worked with on his time on Brando's One-Eyed Jacks, and that would be Slim Pickens. Uh, Kubrick would hire him from the role, uh, but they would have to save his scenes for the end because Pickens had apparently never been out of the country, and it took him almost a month to get his, get his passport <laughs> to shoot the film in England. Uh, for the role of G uh, uh, Jack D. Ripper, uh, Santa Kubrick was able to talk Sterling Hayden into coming out of retirement to make his first film in five years hayden famously wow. was in the killing that kubrick directed um but it wouldn't be a stanley kubrick film if there weren't some conflicts between him and a cast member uh for dr strangelove it would be george c scott according to james earl jones kubrick would tr kubrick tricked scott into giving the performance he gave as general turkinson uh stanley would tell him to be as over the top as possible in his warm-up takes, which was the first few takes he shot, uh, so that Scott would not be uncomfortable when doing the later takes that were more subtle. Uh, Kubrick would then use all of the warm-up takes in the movie. <laughs> that's a that's a that's, that's a solid that's a solid uh, strategy. Yeah, uh, Scott would vow never to work with Kubrick again because of what he did, and they never did. Uh, this is after the film came out, of course. But it seems while on the set, they did bond over playing chess uh scott would play chess the two would play chess constantly on set some saying over hundreds of games uh while they were doing it and there are several pictures and playing together it actually said it actually calmed scott down because he was known to be somewhat difficult to work with but mm -hmm. because uh because he was so impressed with kubrick's skill at chess it actually like chilled him out on set. And they said, that's why he did a lot of the warm up takes because he began to, uh, warm up to, uh, a Kubrick in a way. 
Um, and even though he vowed never to work with him again, it was reported that Scott would later say that this was one of his favorite performances that he ever did. Um, when it comes to the technical side of the film, the big standout is the set for the war room. Uh, initially, mm-hmm. production designer Ken Adam designed a two-story set that Kubrick approved, but then Kubrick would later change his mind. Uh, Adam would then be inspired by German Expressionism, specifically the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Fritz Lang's Metropolis. They want it to seem like a bomb shelter, so that's why it's a triangular shape and had concrete walls. They also mm-hmm. made the floors shiny black, inspired by Fred Astaire dance movies. That's what it was. Oh, um, interesting. So that's why it looks that way. Also, apparently Kubrick asked Adam to make the ceiling concrete as well, so the director of photography, Gilbert Taylor, could not light from the ceiling forcing him to create the circular light that hangs over the war room table. And while the film is in black and white, the tape can guess the color of the table in the war room. Uh, green It is green. The reason (laughs) was he wanted the actors to make it feel like they were playing a card game or poker, uh, for the stakes of the end of the world. Basically they're gambling for the end of the world. Um, also as a side note, Ken Adam was a production designer on Dr. No, and would do a total of seven James Bond films, which somewhat Ooh. makes sense when you look at the set of the bomb shelter. Um, mm-hmm. Also, when talking about Adam's production design, in the early 1960s, the B-52 bomber was cutting-edge technology, uh, so access to it was a matter of national security. The Pentagon refused to lend any support to the film after they read the script. Also, I think Kubrick, it's also Kubrick didn't even ask them to read it. But the set designers had to reconstruct the B-52's bomber's cockpit. Set designers reconstructed the B-52's bomber's cockpit from a single photograph that appeared in a British flying magazine. (laughs) Um, When some American Air Force personnel were invited to view the cockpit, uh, they said it was a perfect copy. Uh, Stanley Kubrick feared that Ken Adams' production design team had used illegal methods and could be (laughs) investigated by the FBI because of how close they were to the actual B-52. Uh, that's, that's pretty impressive and speaking of 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 government stuff while shooting aerial footage over greenland apparently the second unit camera crew actually filmed a secret u.s military base and their plane was forced down and the crew was suspected of being soviet spies <laughs> so yeah um but also famously one of the biggest scenes that kubrick shot for the film was not in the film and that was the infamous kind of ending of the pie fight in the war room. It was to be the biggest pie fight ever put to screen. Uh, wow, the, the biggest? The biggest. Kubrick wow. would later cut the scene, saying it turned the, the satire more into a big farce. Uh, it also seems the actors couldn't keep a straight face during it. Um, <laughs> in turn, the scene was, was never shown in any screening, but... Uh, a side thing, a year later, a film called The Great Race starring Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and Natalie Wood would have the biggest pie fight ever put to screen, according to the marketing of that film. But what I find interesting... <laughs> Was this something people were more I don't into know. at that point that has been lost to time? People Apparently. sat around and they were like, do you know what my favorite pie fight is? It is oh, that's yeah. a good one, but that's it's not a good the biggest one. one. It's not The Great yeah. Race. But no, I, what I what I have a theory, because that movie was directed by Blake Edwards. Mm-hmm. who did several play, uh, Pink Panther movies with, Pink uh, Panther with Peter movies, Sellers. Yeah. And I wonder, because they shot, I think a shot in the dark in 64, which is right after Strange Love, and mm-hmm. uh, Great Race comes out in 65. I wonder if they were just like, Sellers like, yeah, we shot this pie fight. It was really big, but we never used it. And Edward's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to use that. And then that's he also, uses that's that That's also line. my favorite, uh, favorite Pink Panther movie. A shot in the dark. I figured. I yeah. figured. 
Another major issue that occurred during the filming was that Kubrick found out that there was another film being made with a very similar premise as Dr. Strangelove. Now tell me if this sounds familiar. It's about a U it's about a group of US bombers who are accidentally accidentally sent to bomb Moscow and the US president must figure out a way to stop the bombers from starting a nuclear war. Yeah, that that sounds like Dr. Strangelove. That film would be Failsafe starring Henry Fonda and directed by Saint Lamette. Uh, it's, it's a straight drama and Kubrick would argue that the book that the movie failsafe was based on plagiarized red alert, the book that (laughs) strange love is based on. Um, and Kubrick wanted to make sure that felt. So basically what happened was, uh, they had a settlement. Columbia bought the rights to failsafe so that they would release it eight months after strange love came out because Kubrick did not want to compete with strange love. Mm-hmm. Um, only a few weeks before the film's release, Kubrick was gearing up to have the first test screening of the film at the end of 1963, but something tragic happened in the world. Can you guess what that is, Thomas? Uh, is that when, when it was Kennedy? Shot? It was Ken- John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963, the night of the film's first test screening, uh, which was canceled because of the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the film's release was actually pushed back to Jan- to the end of January because of the, uh, because of the assassination. Some people believe the main reason Kubrick cut the pie scene, uh, even though he says it was already cut, but the reason people think it was that was cut because of the Kennedy assassination was because at one point, president Merkin, who's played by Peter Sellers is hit by a pie and George C. Scott said, our gallant young president has been struck down his prime. Mm. Um, so either way, it sounds like if it was already cut, but if it wasn't cut, it would have been cut because of the assassination. So it's like, yeah. whatever. Uh, while that might not have been cut because of that, Kubrick did make one change to the film because of Kennedy's assassination. At one point, the line you said... I felt I have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff was originally Dallas and not Vegas. Mm. And they dubbed it over in post to not draw any references to Kennedy's assassination. Gotcha. Um, Finally, after all that strange, love will be released on January 29th, 1964, but would draw some controversy from critics uh, for being (laughs) anti-American was one big thing. What, what this is a continued (laughs) we put out an anti-war movie, all these countries, it's like, Anti-American yourself here. Yeah, when yeah. they put out, you know, when they when they put out uh, uh, Paths of Glory, and all those countries are like, "This was anti our country." It's like <laughs> it's anti-war. That's just yeah. war in general. If you yeah, identify they, they, that, you know, France banned that movie for twenty years. Almost, it's insane. Um, it, it's like <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna I'm drawing too many. Uh, the, <laughs> there's this. Uh, there's. <laughs> there's this like alt-right journalist and one time like somebody michael giacchino the composer uh-huh. composer yeah. was like tweeting something and somebody was like like i don't remember how it went down but he like tweeted like fuck nazis <laughs> and this guy wrote back like whoa there it is oh we, we knew that was coming and it's like do you not agree with that if you get yeah. offended by someone <laughs> saying that uh that's on you man that's I'm on sorry. you man that's not on me <laughs> that's not on me um yeah but also i think people just didn't find it funny was the other thing with dr strange left so uh our uh good old good old man bosley crother of new york times who did not like lolita mm-hmm. did not like this one either 
Uh, he mm-hmm. said the film was a discredit and even contempt for our whole defense establishment. The most shattering sick joke I've ever come across. <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah, sure. It's, yeah. it's a sick joke. Um, but the film would be a financial success, uh, earning close to $5 million in its initial run in North America. I think we'd get total $9.2 million like uh, later on. Um, it would also receive four Oscar nominations. It'd be the first time Kubrick was nominated for an Oscar, receiving one for Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay with him and uh, Pierre George and Terry Southern, and one for mm-hmm. Best Picture as the sole producer. Pierre Sellers would also receive an Oscar for Best Actor, the last actor actually to do so in a Kubrick film. Wow. And so when looking at this era, what are you seeing? Like we've, we see the, what's the continuation from part one to part two, but also what's about to kind of, what's he evolving into here in this, in this uh, part? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you very obviously see him like try, try to fit into the studio system. Yes. yes. Espe- you know, like we've said, especially at this time in Hollywood, like if you weren't in the studio system, you were, you were far, far independent, you know? Yes. Um, those, those were your two choices. Um, you couldn't be kind of like, like we have today, these kind of all tours who are known for being independent. And every time yeah. they drop a new movie, which is, you know, I think Kubrick kind of helped pave the way for that. But yeah, but at, at his time you were either, making art house films or or you were in the studio system yeah and and so what what we see here is, is him dipping his toes into the studio system mm-hmm. and then going that's not for me and yeah. then you know lolita is kind of it's obviously like pushing the buttons but then with dr strange love him going you know what i'm just going to be myself i've tried yeah, to yeah. please other people it didn't necessarily pay off so now i'm just going to do what i want to do and yeah. that's that's when we get Dr. Strangelove. And that yeah. is the beginning of, of this slate of what we're about to get into, which is just absolute Kubrickian. I don't, I don't, I don't think you could say even as much as I love paths of glory. I don't think yeah. anything pre Dr. Strangelove. When, when you talk about this, what Kubrickian means, I don't think any of those movies are quote unquote Kubrickian. I agree. Strangelove is. And then everything after that is. Is that way? Because I think I think Pat's going might be one of his best films. I think, but mm. the run from Strange Love to Eyes Wide Shut, it's like every film is different, but every film feels like it's from him. Yeah, and it mm-hmm. starts with Strange Love, and it's his like all of his movies feel like you're getting a vision into his mind. Yeah. And in some cases, not all of them, but like it's almost like with this one, even 2001, even Clockwork Orange, uh, there's like a worry of the the future ahead in some way mm-hmm. um, where there's something that's happening here. Yeah. I think Strange Love is supposed to be like, oh, it's not now, but it's like close in the future was kind of the idea yeah. that he was saying. Um, but yeah, you're seeing what he's doing visually is, is evolving. And I think Strange Love's where it's like kind of talking about like let me get back to my roots, where like Lolita and Strange Love are both in black and white. After he did Spartacus, mm-hmm. he did he did the color color film. He's like, I'm gonna go back to these, make a more artistic choice. Cause 64, not a lot's in color. Like we're getting to a point at that point where like they're about to take away I think the best cinematography award for black and white or whatever they're about to take away at this point within a few years so like black and white film is slow is quickly becoming obsolete 
and Strange Love would mm-hmm. be the last film he shot in black and white, um, or black and white film would be obsolete and be one of the last films he shot. It'd be the last film he shot in black and white. Um, but you're seeing him like, okay, let me figure out what to do. Let me go back to what I did before. And I think when he got that producing credit, because he'd be the sole producer in all of the rest of his films, that almost like said, cool, I have control over every aspect of the movie. And if you don't like it, then I don't make it or I fire who, if it's someone who's beneath me, it's kind of the thing is what comes off as. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think he fully forms who he is with strange love and after it. But again, you're starting to see, you still have the war themes popping up. So, and you also can, you have that kind of sexual perversion from Lolita that I think will pop up in, in later films that he does. So you're, you're seeing kind of the main themes and ideas he's going to explore for the rest of his career really come into, to, to um, more concrete, I guess, perspective in this era. And he's just going to yeah. go full on into it in the next, in the next part of his career. And the next part will be the next, next week we're talking about next episode is part three is 2001 space odyssey, a clockwork orange and Barry Lyndon, but go watch those. I think a lot of them are streaming. Uh, so be sure to check those out before we talk about next week. I hate that sound this part, Thomas, anything else you want to say about, about these three films? Yeah. Strap in. It's about to get weird. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> About to get even weirder, baby. But that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for Thomas and me, feel free to contact us at cinnationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, or even just kind words. Uh, and also, if you're a new listener or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so so you can stay up to on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. I was I was working on my my pun for this one, but between nuclear war and pedophiles, it was really tough to uh, to come up with anything. So just you know, five star <laughs> reviews. Just you know, we really appreciate your feedback, and uh, you know anything anything any, any feedback you can give would also you just say hey i love this movie all right i love this movie podcast and then other people see that and then they're like oh i was thinking about check it's like it's like yelp you know you go on yelp <laughs> you're like oh this restaurant five stars i'll check it out like that's, that's the same way podcast reviews work so just just comment i am Cination podcast is what you do on the, <laughs> on, on, on the review but yeah and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram tiktok uh thomas thank you for joining me as always thank you for having me And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.